0: Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Newcomer Investor Channel, where we talk about stocks, the beauty of investing, and we learn from each other and share some insights. Now, today's episode is, I think, quite cool. Um, really, the goal here, I want to share some uh, ideas on how to filter your stocks so that you don't buy rubbish, basically, because let's face it, I'm entering my fourth or fifth year of investing. I have made many mistakes um, along this journey and you know I'm not afraid to let people know. You can just check out episode 2 and you can see what happened to Algonquin Power, which I own still. Uh, so you know, I wanted to look at, actually scratch that. You can never completely protect yourself from making a bad investment. That's the first thing to always know. Every investment could technically go down to zero. What I want to present today are ways to filter your investment choices to reduce the probability of that happening as much as possible. So we're basically going to go over a few points, uh, these categories, let's say, and I'll give like a little case study for each of them and explain how they would fit within this category. Okay, so our first category to ensure you have a good investment is to buy a company that has a strong, sticky product that people love. A company that builds an ecosystem, for example. Now, the prime example for this is Apple. Everybody knows Apple. If you're listening, do you have an iPod, or an iPhone, or a MacBook? Let's take a trip back in time. I remember um, getting my first iPod uh, actually, my mum uh, gave it to me. It was this rectangular shape. I'm trying to remember the year, probably around 2008, 2009. And, wow, back at, back in, at that time, you, we used to have the iTunes store and you could buy albums there and then you would synchronize it into your iPod. And I don't know if that was the case all the time, but I do know Apple's iTunes store wasn't actually always profitable. But what happened is they, they actually had this store to get people to buy those iPods, because the iPods were making tons of money. So Apple spent years building this ecosystem to trap people and get them stuck with their products. And now, of course, people a lot of people who have iPhones also have MacBooks and vice versa, and most people do not switch over to a different uh, brand. So this means Apple has very high switching costs. Now you look at a concept called price elasticity or inelasticity, if you're not familiar, if you have an elastic demand, that means that with a slight change in price, your demand immediately goes down. you just stop buying it. And an inelastic one is the opposite. It's when price can be adjusted, but you're still gonna keep buying it. So I don't know about you, but I have a MacBook and an iPhone If i learn tomorrow that the price goes up by 25 percent i'm still gonna buy those items just because i'm so used to them my my whole life and workflow uh, especially with my music as well it's all with apple software and there's no way i'm gonna try to figure out how to use a different brand another thing too is i'm not even good at tech so i don't want an android phone right i want an iphone so There's a very inelastic demand for for Apple products, so they've really built a sticky product. It's almost like a utility at this point. Once people's iPhones die, they just get another iPhone. So that is a great first filter, is buying a company that has products that constantly stay there and people just keep buying them over and over again. People who are locked in and stuck forever. Our second concept is the concept of moats and barriers to entry. Now a company has a wide moat once it is considered that no one else can really easily enter that same space and compete with them. I think one of the best examples we have for this is the company Enbridge. Now, if you don't know Enbridge, it is one of the, if not the, largest uh, transporter of oil and gas, uh, across Canada and also into the U S they operate a huge network of pipelines and It's so difficult for anyone to try and compete with them. Now, let's just for the sake of it, do a little mental exercise and imagine the process to do that. The very first step would be getting regulatory approval. Now, if you wanna build pipelines that are this big, you're not only operating in one jurisdiction, you actually need approval in a whole bunch of places. So let's assume, start off with Alberta, who loves oil and gas, and then you want to run a pipeline through Ontario and maybe into the U.S., you have to deal with different provinces. You have to deal with the provincial level, the federal level, and then with another country, the United States, all of whom have different requirements, uh, different obstacles, different political pressures. You know, in Alberta, there's pressure to build lots of stuff. In other parts, there's pressure to resist building as much as possible, right? So it's, that process takes years, even decades. That's the first step. Now let's imagine that for some reason you're a Superman or Superwoman and you managed to get all the approvals to build all the pipelines you want. Now you need to raise money. Uh, Now pipelines aren't cheap. It costs billions to build some of this stuff. So Enbridge has existed for decades. They've had the time to build and strengthen their networks. You have to start from scratch. So you have to raise the money somehow, billions, tens of billions, and then you build this stuff. Now, let's say you actually manage, maybe Elon decides he doesn't want to be part of Twitter anymore and he invests in your pipelines instead. Now you have to actually build it and then you have to compete with this company, Enbridge, which is already established. And of course, it's not like you can build your pipelines right next to their pipelines because that wouldn't make any sense. You wouldn't make any money because they already have that market share. So. That just shows how the benefit of a wide moat, once you are entrenched in an area like this, it's pretty much impossible for any, anyone else to really get involved. So, no, not, no shades to Enbridge, but I think here their advantage isn't necessarily their operational excellence or the fact that they've managed to have very few oil spillages or things like that. It's really more the fact that it's impossible to build anything, just in general, it takes forever. And so, they own that space and no one can take that from them. So Enbridge has a very wide moat. And of course, there are a few other companies that have these characteristics, such as one of my favorites, Canadian National Railway. It's, the, it's pretty much the same example, uh, but a different industry. Uh, if you own a company like that, chances are it's going to exist for a long time and it's not easily going to be displaced by anyone else. All right, our third filter is so simple yet so underrated. It is debt. Now, not necessarily the absolute level of debt because, I mean... If you're a $100 billion company, then $10,000 is nothing, right? But the relative debt, uh, debt relative to your assets and or debt relative to your cash flows. Now, again, I thought I was experienced enough at this point to not get caught in the strap, But clearly, I did make this mistake, and I admit it on the podcast. I bought Algonquin knowing that they had debt, but thinking that they could manage it. And clearly, they could not. Now, again, it's true. No one thought interest rates would go up so much. But the fact is, every company needs to be prepared if interest rates do go up. Now, one way to protect yourself from this issue is if you have a company that has very low debt. I want to um, bring up here a pretty obscure company, not very well known. It's called Enghouse Systems, or Enghouse. I don't know how to pronounce it. Um, it's a small Canadian tech software company. And they've mostly grown by acquiring other companies. Um, some of them in Canada, some of them in the US, and some in Europe, actually. Uh, but I, I love their management, their commitment to keeping almost no debt. And they have a huge cash balance. It's not actually huge if you compare it to Microsoft, but it's huge. It's about $200 million at the time of recording, uh, which is huge relative to their market cap and their assets in general. So they've had zero issue right now in this high interest rate moment and it's now becoming a huge advantage because they don't have these increasing uh, interest expenses to deal with. So low debt means you don't have to worry too much about these macroeconomic events kind of coming back and, and biting you in the butt, which is what happened with Algonquin. Our next criteria isn't a must because not every company's business model allows for that, but it is a criteria that is nice to have if that's what your company's model is. Uh, And that is network effect. Now, if you don't know network effect, uh, the best way to explain it is the value of this product that the company is selling increases depending on the number of people that use it. The best example I can think of for that, or at least one good example, is uh, Uber and Lyft. So the more people use those apps, the better those products are. Imagine trying to make a competitor to Uber. So you want to start your own version. So you go to a customer and you say, hey, you have to use my platform. The customer will say, well, I won't use it because there aren't enough cars because it's brand new. And uh, on the flip side, you go to uh, drivers and you tell them, use my platform. And they'll say, well, there's no point because there are no customers. So of course, customers and drivers would rather go where there are lots of customers and drivers, which is Uber and Lyft. So when you have a nice strong network effect like this, it's also very difficult to to displace you from it. Of course, another great example for this is meta platforms. We have Facebook and Instagram that both have, you know, hundreds of millions, billions of users. Advertisers love to go onto those platforms because that's where a lot of the people are already. So these companies benefit from strong network effects, making them more difficult to this place and making it harder for other companies to enter that space. So I hope that these criteria can be, again, it's not an exhaustive list. There are many other good criteria to have to buy high quality, but I feel like if you keep those in mind, you have a reasonable chance of, again, reducing the probability of buying bad companies. Now, I wanted to go over one last topic today um, and those are my comments on a great tweet by Wealth Building Dad uh, at Wealth Building 15. So shout out to you! I love your tweet. He said, "The Algonquin Power announcements today are a fascinating display of why personal finance is personal. To some, it signals remorse by management and long-term opportunity. To others, it's the straw that broke the camel's back and signals time to move money out. It's so important to know your thesis." I love this tweet because it highlights again the fact that we all have different investing styles and one person's decision for them may be a genius thing. For someone else, it may be crazy, but there isn't necessarily a right or wrong. Oh, well, scratch that. Sometimes there are bad decisions, but overall, depending on your investing style, you know, something be good versus bad. And I have a great example for you here is, again, Ryokan, which I've mentioned several times. I was buying the stock during the pandemic when it seemed like it was the end. I mean, if you looked at the comments at the time, people said, no more confidence in management. It's just horrific. They're, they're dead. They're gonna die. And I'm up more than 50% with a 7 plus percent dividend, right? So for me, that was a great purchasing decision. But for others, it was also maybe the right decision to sell uh, at the time when you know everything seemed like it was uh, getting destroyed. So it's crucial for everyone to know their investing style. Now my main characteristic, and I know this, is I tend to be very optimistic, sometimes over-optimistic. And it has been a weakness uh, a few times. I mean, it was when I purchased wheat stocks, (laughs) right when I started investing. It has been a weakness, clearly, when I purchased Algonquin Power with all their debt. But again, the same weakness, when I started, it was full of naivete. But I think I have fine-tuned it over the years, and now I'm a little more clear-eyed about it. And now it's more of a strength. So again, my personal style, I don't like to catastrophize when shit hits the fan. I can spot opportunities when everyone panics and runs away. So that's how I got so much Scotiabank during COVID. That's how I got lots of TD during COVID and all this RioCan. Another example in 2022, Enghouse Systems, it's a great Canadian stock. It fell from over $70 all the way down to $25. And as a $25 mark, I told my fiance, you have to buy the stock. It's amazing. The, like, look at the track record. The sell-off is crazy. And of course she got some under $30 and now we're up 30, 40% on the stock already. And I'm sure it's going to keep moving up. It's a great company. I got some open text in 2022. To under $40. I'm sure it's going to keep going up. I bought some Great West Life Co under $30. Same thing. I bought some Québécois in a $25 range, which we haven't seen at that price in four years, right? So all these buying decisions, they're based on past performance, but also on plans for the future. Uh, and I'm optimistic. That's just the way that I am. I feel like humanity is is beautiful and incredible. And we're very, very clever people. We're a clever civilization, and we're going to keep growing. And yeah, uh, again, I mean, I don't know. I just like to study history. I I see the past. There was, you know, 1929 crisis. We've had the the World Wars. We've had the Cold War. We've had the Vietnam War. We've had 9-11. We've had the 2008 crisis. We've had COVID. And each time humans come out even stronger than before. So I don't catastrophize. Of course, some companies die, uh, as they they must, um, because that's just the circle of life. But overall, humanity keeps growing and thriving and, and doing better than before. And with that... That is just my style. I like to be optimistic and so far it's been a pretty good strategy for me, but I recognize this may not work for everyone else. Some people like to buy companies where they know they're just going to keep thriving constantly. I mean, if you tell me you want to buy the highest quality and you put all your portfolio only in Apple, I understand. I don't think that's a dumb strategy at all. That's not my strategy, but I think it's still a good one, although it's different, right? So yeah, I just wanted to give a, a little uh, shout out again to Wealth Building Dad on that. I thought that was a great tweet because it's important for us on Twitter or elsewhere when we debate to recognize that we all have different styles and, you know, someone's style may work for someone but not for someone else. And yeah, so with that said, thank you all again for listening. I hope this episode was useful or at least interesting. I uh, definitely have a lot more coming out soon. And again, keep tweeting me ask me questions. I'll do everything I can to to answer and keep this podcast interesting. Thank you all for listening to Newcomer Investor Channel, and I look forward to connecting with you again soon.